0: Well, we appreciate the, I appreciate very much Jeff preaching last week. It's uh, always good to know that the word is in good hands. Um, I'm always confident in those who who preach when I can't be here, and I appreciate Jeff very much. Susie and I enjoyed listening to that message on the way home from the Shepherds Conference. We enjoyed a great week down there, and uh, we're grateful for your prayers one of the things that's clear, as you talk to pastors, is that one of the great privileges and also burdens of pastoral ministry is that you are acquainted not only with your own sorrows and challenges in life, but you're closely acquainted with others as people open their lives and uh, entrust their challenges to you and. All of us go through difficulty, don't we? And oftentimes we feel perhaps that it's manageable, and sometimes when it's really difficult, it seems overwhelming. There are times in life, I'm grateful that they haven't been many, but you almost feel as though you, you might be driven to despair. God in his mercy, of course, for most of us, limits those times. But we do find ourselves at times, don't we, anxious, unsettled, unclear about where things are headed for us, how things are going to work out. We're dishonest if we think that life is just one perpetual bowl of cherries and that we walk around with a plasticized Christian grin. Uh, That's not the way life really is. The good news is that God is with us in trouble isn't he as Paul writes to the Philippians he finds himself in very narrow straits he's in custody he's facing a trial he knows at that, that trial that his life hangs in the balance as he face a faces a potential death sentence there's a great deal of uncertainty in Paul's life and yet he burgeons with joy he's uplifted. He's confident. He's smiling on the future. And I am grateful as we talked about a couple of weeks ago and I know you are too that Christian joy is not dependent upon favorable circumstances. There is a joy that comes from knowing God that isn't really in any way related to our our circumstances. And in fact the more bleak the circumstances become in many ways the greater the joy grows in our life. It's tempting sometimes to tell people in the midst of their hardships that what you really need to do is just rejoice in these things. You need to rejoice always. That, of course, is true. The Bible does teach us to rejoice at all times and in all things in the Lord. But I want to say this, and I want to say it clearly, that if that's All we give people, if that's the totality of our prescription for them in the midst of their trials and troubles, is that they just need to grin and bear it, if you will, in a spiritual sense, that they should just rejoice more. If that's all we're giving to people who are facing headwinds in life, we are not very good counselors. In the end, we only end up adding insult to injury. Not only are you going to suffer what you're going to suffer, but you should really have a good attitude about it. We need something more than that. It's not not a matter, is it, when you're really going through stuff, to simply think, well, I've just got to flip this joy switch. I've just got to put on a good face, a stiff upper lip. As if we could just fix everything by a sheer act of, of the will. Here's the key. It isn't in telling people that they should rejoice that we really help people. It's in helping people understand why they should rejoice. It's in giving them reasons why they can rejoice that we really serve people who are struggling. And Paul in our text today again is going to continue down this route of of giving us reasons why we should have joy. In the midst of trouble, let's pick up in Philippians 1 and verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Lord, as we come to this text, there is in the Apostle Paul a certain perspective. His mind is fixed and focused on A number of things that he has gleaned, a number of insights that he has from your word that we desperately need. We pray that you would help us this morning by your spirit to understand the things that you have for us here. Grow us, Lord, that we too might find ourselves rejoicing in you more often, more consistently, and Lord, all of it to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Well, verse 18 in our text this morning is where we will begin, and it is really a hinge verse. It's where we ended two weeks ago, and I didn't finish a couple of weeks ago with the final statement of the verse. Let's go back to it. Paul looks at his very difficult circumstances and all the good that has come from them and the result of of all of that, and he rejoices in it, he says... What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Why was it that Paul rejoiced even though he's in chains, even though he faces the prospect of beheading? Well, verse 12 tells us that his circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The gospel was going forth more broadly and more quickly than it was when he was a free man. And he rejoiced in that reality. Verse 13 tells us that the gospel had spread through Caesar's elite praetorian guard and that the praetorian guard itself was making known Christ and him crucified all the way out to the the world that they they were traveling through, not to mention Rome itself. And then in verse 14, we're told that the church was trusting the Lord more. That was reason for joy. And that was evidenced by the fact that they were preaching the gospel of Christ more boldly. Not everyone was preaching from righteous motives, but that didn't really bother Paul as long as Christ was being proclaimed. And and so he says, what then? What is the conclusion of all of this is that only in every way... Whether in pretense, whether this was a show, whether this was from a wrong motive or in truthful right motives, Christ is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. He says, you know, God's plan for my life, even though this is difficult, is better than my plan for my life. God's providence to Paul was impressive. As he watched it unfold, he was astonished at the goodness of God who was working mightily, powerfully through his imprisonment to bring about the very thing that Paul wanted most, and that was the exaltation of Christ his Lord. If you were to ask Paul, why is your head up? Why are you so buoyant? Why is your heart strengthened in the midst of such miserable circumstances? He could tell you exactly why he was rejoicing. Christ was building his church, God is sovereign. And Paul says, I'm a prisoner, not of Rome, but I'm a prisoner of Christ. And God is working through this imprisonment, the fact that that the church is going to preach the gospel more faithfully, and the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, goes forth, and it goes forth with power, and all of that, if you think about it, for just a couple of seconds, you'll, you'll understand that every one of those things can be chapter-versed in the Bible, can't they? That's an important thing for us to understand. Paul rejoiced because he thought along the lines of Scripture. He had other options. He could have been focused on what I like to call the lowercase realities. He was in jail four years of his life that he could have been out enjoying the good things that that existed if he were a free man, Uh, the the fact that he he was limited in so many ways from so many of the pleasures of life, and he could have been focused, and woe is me about everything, but that wasn't what he was focused on. He was focused on the all-caps realities of life, which is the gospel was going forward, God was demonstrating his power, and Christ was being made known. You see, he's got solid footing to stand on, a firm foundation, and a very biblical perspective on his circumstances. He was, in the language of Scripture, taking every thought captive to obedience to Christ. This is why Paul can rejoice. This is why he is not anxious or uptight, because he is fixed on God and God's purposes in this life, and he is rejoicing that they are going forward. And this is what I was trying to get across just a couple of minutes ago. You must understand this is a very necessary ingredient that we have biblical reasons that underlie the biblical command to rejoice always. Paul is rejoicing in the Lord because the Lord is accomplishing his purposes through Paul's chains. Paul says, I'm rejoicing now. I'm smiling at the future. He says, in this I rejoice. And then you'll notice in the second half of the verse, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. Now, when you hear that, you might be thinking that Paul is, again, with a stiff upper lift, making a determination, I'll rejoice in spite of this. That's not what he's saying. Paul is simply looking forward. He makes a pivot here from looking at the present circumstances to looking at the future. He says, not only am I rejoicing now, but my joy will endure. He's looking at things as he, he looks at the future. You see the future tense there. I will rejoice this is not a, a determination to rejoice in the future, but a confident expression that he is rejoicing and will continue undoubtedly to rejoice. Look at verse 19. He says, for I know that this will turn out. There's another future tense. Verse 20, that, that, that I will not be put to shame, that Christ will be exalted. See, he's looking forward and he's anticipating what is going to come down the pike And he knows that life in Christ is a life of joy. And so he's confident. He's buoyant. I said last week I wasn't sure I could go so far as to say he was bubbly, but I'm tempted. Paul is not in chains the way most of us probably would be in chains. But I'd sure like to learn his secret. He's looking forward He's anticipating an outcome. He doesn't know everything about the future, but he knows enough because he knows his Bible and he knows his God. So why is it that Paul rejoices in his future? And what I want you to see this morning in Paul's thinking here really are what amount to five reasons you can rejoice in any and every circumstance. Five reasons that you ultimately can smile at your future. The first thing in Paul's thinking was that his joy was strengthened by the promise of a certain deliverance. His joy was strengthened by the promise of a certain deliverance. Look at verse 19. For I know, Paul says, there's certainty. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now when you think of that and Paul is in chains, you think immediately that he must be referring to his deliverance from jail, and we'll come back to that in a moment. I'm not sure that that's what he means. But when he says that I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, that this, I believe, is looking back and saying, in light of all of the circumstances that I find myself, all that God is doing through them, I am confident, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance and this is like some of you perhaps after giving a bunch of detail in a conversation will say something like all that to say or you 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 might say to make a long story short that's sort of where Paul is here he's summing things up and he says all that to say I'm going to be delivered he's taking a collective look At all that he endured in the cause of Christ, all the adversity, all the difficulty, and in the midst of all of that, he is confident now and looking forward into the future that it will, in fact, have a good outcome. I know this will turn out well for me. Now, the question is, what is he going to be delivered from? That word delivered is the word soteria. It is the common word for salvation. It's rendered a number of different ways in Scripture to save, to rescue, to deliver. It speaks of safety. It speaks of personal welfare. It's used in other places of being vindicated. It's a word that has a number of meanings, but most often in Scripture it refers to salvation in the ultimate sense, and that may be what Paul means here. I will be eternally saved in the end. No matter the outcome of all of this, I will, in fact, be brought safely into the kingdom of heaven finally. You can see it used that way in chapter 1 and verse 28. You can see it used that way in chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul here in verse 20 is clearly thinking in terms of life and death you see that at the end of verse 20 he says whether by by life or by death christ is going to be exalted in in me so it may mean that paul is saying i'm going to be delivered in the ultimate sense i'm going to heaven it may also mean that he's going to be delivered from prison it could be used that way. He's expecting, then, to, to be released. And a number of people, good interpreters of Scripture, would take it this way. Seems to make better sense, doesn't it, of the prayers of Paul that, that he... You, you can see the Philippians praying as, as the church prayed for Peter that he would be released from prison. It may be that that is what he's saying. And Paul expresses confidence down in verses 25 and 26 that he will, in fact, be released That may mean, uh, this may be what he means, that he would be released or delivered from prison. Others think, and I'm tempted maybe to go with them in this, that maybe what he's saying is that he's going to be delivered from shame. From shame in the preaching of the gospel. Paul, Paul is concerned that Christ would be exalted. Yes, in verse 20 He knows he's been appointed for the defense of the gospel. He knows he's going to stand before a tribunal, again, uh, of Caesar, of a bunch of people who have the power of life and death over him. He knows he's got to stand faithful in that moment to declare the truth. He doesn't want to be ashamed in his failure to do that. And he, in fact, pleads for the prayers of the churches, as we'll see in a moment, that he might speak the word of God boldly as he ought, with clarity and conviction. All of those understandings of deliverance are plausible. All of them have merit. All of them are supported by the context. All of them are held by faithful commentators. So the question comes down of which one is right, and I will tell you, I don't know. We're loath to say that around here, aren't we? Because we believe that the Bible is clear and God intended to communicate through it. And thus he has. Peter acknowledged, didn't he, that some of the things Paul said were in fact challenging. I really don't know. I would would add this, though. I'm not really sure it's necessary to land. I, I think the point that Paul is trying to make is... Simply this, primarily this, is that in any and every circumstance in my life, as difficult as it may seem, I do know this. I'll be delivered. Do do I need strength to stand in the moment before a, a watching tribunal? God will be faithful to me. Do I need deliverance from these chains and into the eternal kingdom? God will be faithful to me. Do I need in the midst of all of this to simply be delivered so that I might serve Christ faithfully without the bondage of these chains? God will be faithful who will deliver me. Brother, sister in Christ, what do you face today? What is it that... That troubles you this morning. I tell you, you can face it with joy. Because if you are in Christ, you serve a Christ who is faithful without fault. He will see you through. I'll be delivered, Paul says. I do know that. I don't think he's received any special revelation from the Lord about his future. But he has the special revelation that he's already received in the word of God. He knows his God. He knows the truth. And he knows it will go well with him. If he's sentenced to death then he'll be delivered to the kingdom of heaven. And if he's judged not guilty, then he'll be set free to serve Christ. And if he finds himself defending the gospel, he'll preach boldly by the Spirit's enablement. Whatever the case, as uncertain as his future is, this he knows, he'll be delivered, he'll be rescued, he'll be saved, all will be well. It's intriguing in in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. This is a word-for-word quote out of the mouth of Job, these words, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is quoting Job, and you think about it, when you think about Job, what do you think about? Trial, right? And here is, here is Job looking at the trial, the immense duress that he was under, and yet He was confident that in the end, God would be faithful to him and deliver him. He says in that passage in Job 13 that even though he slay me, I will hope in him this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul has this same perspective. Come what may, God is my certain hope. Steve Lawson put it this way, quote, Paul believes that his life is held in the hands of a sovereign God. It is this conviction in the overruling authority of God that gives him great joy. He would be filled with fear if he did not trust this formidable truth. He would have no joy if he thought his circumstances were governed by random chance. Paul has lays his head on the pillow, I love this, lays his head on the pillow of the sovereignty of God each night and he sleeps well end quote who wrote Romans 8 28 the Apostle Paul who was it who said that there was nothing created that could separate him or you from the love of God it was the Apostle Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who was it who wrote to the Philippians that God would in fact complete what he had begun in them it was the Apostle Paul And he knew that same truth applied to him. He was positively certain that whether by life or by death, that God would accomplish his good purpose in him, whatever the particulars, there would be a good outcome. Beloved, this is why James tells us that we should consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. We should consider it all joy. This is why Peter said, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while it's only temporary, if necessary, and it is, if you're going through it, it's necessary and God has deemed it so. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Let's be honest trials bring stress. Peter says, That's okay we can greatly rejoice in the realities of our salvation, the fact that we will be delivered. We know the destination, and however bumpy the journey be, we know we will arrive safely because we serve a faithful God. We know the end of the story, don't we? And so God had promised good to Paul, And that stirred up his joy. There was another factor that brought him great joy. His joy was strengthened, secondly, by the prayers of the saints. I hope this sinks into us this morning. His joy was strengthened by the prayers of the saints. My joy yesterday was strengthened by the prayers of the saints. I was walking into some challenging circumstances. Men prayed for me in the morning. A group of men laid their hands on me. Got home. I got a text from a believer in Southern California. Said he was praying for me. Got a text from a sister in this church. always prays for me. So thankful for the prayers of the saints. And so is Paul. Look at it. Verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Don't miss this. Through your prayers. Whatever the specifics of his deliverance, Paul obviously put a great deal of stock in the fact that the Philippians were were praying for him. Paul relished the prayers of the saints and I really do want you to put your eyes on this. If you're taking notes, jot these down, go back to these passages and let it, Spur you to a to a, to a greater prayer life, to more conviction about engaging with God in the work that he's accomplishing. Look back with me, flip back, I'll just take you in order here. look at Romans chapter 15, Romans 15. And we'll pick up in verse. Paul writes, "Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together. Prayers is work, isn't it? Prayers is challenging. Prayer is striving. To strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. I love the humility of Paul. He was an apostle. He had this." Acts 9 amazing experience he he was taught directly from the Lord he he was well learned and he he had he had just great gifting and yet here is the apostle pleading to the church at Rome to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me what do you want Paul that I might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I might come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Boy, that sounds pretty just normal human Christian ministry, doesn't it? For such a towering figure as the Apostle Paul. Look over at 2 Corinthians In chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Uh, we'll start in verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Look at this. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. There he is again, looking to the future with certainty. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us you also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given to many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Do you see it? Paul was confident he would be delivered and that the prayers of the Corinthians would would in fact contribute to that so that what many would be able to, 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 to be lifted up in gratitude to God for his deliverance even through the prayers of his people. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6 and verse 19. Uh, We'll pick up in verse 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition. You must persevere in it with all petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. I love this to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now this book was written at the same time Philippians was, so Paul is saying, look in my imprisonment, in the chains that I am in, with the, with, the, with the guards that I am strapped to, with those who come to visit me, whether I stand before Caesar, wherever I am, what I want is to be able to preach the word of God with clarity, with boldness, as I ought. There is, by way of side note, a wrong way to preach the word of God, to preach it as mere suggestion, to preach it as one philosophy among many, to offer it timidly and, 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 and carefully so as not to offend anybody. We just shave off some of the, the sharper edges. That's a wrong way to preach the word of God. Paul wanted to preach it for what it was, the word of God and not the word of man. And he asks the church, help me to do that by praying for me. Colossians chapter 4, you can blow right by Philippians, go to the next book, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for, for us as well that God would open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. For time's sake, I'm just going to give you the next three, but in 1 Thessalonians 5.25, Paul just states it very, very uh, simply. Brethren, pray for us. 2nd Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 Finally brethren pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did with you and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith And then in Philemon verse 22 prepare for me a lodging Philemon for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you Is this clear how often do you ask for prayer i wonder how often do you pray like this for your brothers and sisters in christ and this morning when timothy prayed for the the, the saints in ukraine did you believe in fact that those prayers might in fact be answered People say preach on evangelism and prayer and your people will always feel guilty. <laughs> and I suppose there's some truth in that. But brother and sister, again, if, if not today, when? When do you plan to engage in this great work? This is how we serve the Lord together. This is how we get engaged in the ministry in, in Ukraine together. God, in fact, listens to those prayers. This is how he accomplishes his work. How necessary and vital are the prayers of God's people. And I would say this to you, dear Reformed brothers and sisters in Christ, who put so much stock rightfully in the sovereignty of God, the might of God, the foreknowledge of God, the power of God. God does stuff. He initiates stuff. He accomplishes things. But he does it in concert with the prayers of his people. Don't let your theology get in the way of your prayer life. If anybody understood the sovereignty of God and defended it mightily, it was the Apostle Paul, and yet he has has no problem begging the people of God to pray for him. It was his pattern. Paul understood perfectly that God works all things after the counsel of his will. Paul also... Encourages us, what? To pray without ceasing. You see, God works through means, and his means are in accordance with the praying of his people. And God is a, a prayer-answering God, and Paul knew it. And I just love Acts, Acts 12, where you see the church praying for Peter's release, and he gets there, and they're, they're kind of just like, huh? Like, this worked? Right? Didn't James tell us, by the Spirit, that the prayers of the righteous can accomplish much? He did. Paul here knows, and he is strengthened. He is strengthened by the fact that his people are praying for him as he prays for them. And his joy was full. Because of it. That really is maybe the human aspect of this, that the prayers of the saints working in concert with the Holy Spirit, and we need to move on. So that is our third point that Paul's joy is strengthened by the provision of the Holy Spirit. Paul's joy is strengthened by the provision of the Spirit. Back to verse 19, right at the end For I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He's not speaking hear about the Spirit being provided to him in his hour of need, but about the provision that the Spirit of God would provide to him in that need. He had already been supplied with the Holy Spirit at the point of his conversion. Now that Spirit will prove to be the very avenue that he will receive the supply he needs in his hour of trial. Holy Spirit had sustained the Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly sojourn, in His trials, in Him, His temptations, and Paul says that same Spirit is within me, and He will He will bring provision to me. This word provision is intriguing. It's a it's a word that speaks of lavish supply, a rich supply to furnish completely, to outfit adequately, and that's the idea here. Paul is saying the Spirit will provide to me ample supply. And it may be that he is thinking about that promise that was given to Christ's disciples. Do you remember it? From Mark chapter 13 and verse 11, when they arrest you and they hand you over, don't worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Paul might have been thinking about that particularly if his greatest concern was whether he would stand faithfully when he was faced with this tribunal. Or he may be just speaking about this in a more general sense. In other words, he entrusts himself to the Spirit of God who is sufficient as a comforter, as a helper, as the very source of spiritual strength, as our teacher when we need to understand the truth of the Word of God the one who helps our weaknesses, the one who is a guarantee of our inheritance. Nothing will will sort of bolster you when you're facing the fear of death to remember that the Spirit within you is a demonstration that God is never going to let you go. That's the seal. That's, That's the guarantee of your inheritance. And that should bring us, as the Spirit does, peace and joy, and it should cause us to abound in hope. All of those things come from the Holy Spirit. Paul says, look, I have all the resources and power of God resident in the Holy Spirit, who is resident in me, and beloved, the Holy Spirit will give you the grace to endure and make it through faithfully whatever God calls you to. And sometimes we wonder whether this is something, in fact, that we can handle. And the fact is, if it were left to you in your strength, your fear would be right. So what? We need to have our head cast. Allow trials to bounce you heavenward so that you remember that you have the Spirit of God within you. You have the promises of God to you. You have the people of God praying for you. You have the the, the Spirit of God within you who can then supply you with all power necessary to make it through this thing. You need not tremble. That same power is available to everyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. And this strengthened Paul and it made him confident and caused him to rejoice. That's what caused Paul to smile on his future. He knew that his deliverance was certain, that the saints were praying for him, and that the Spirit would supply him with all that he needed for eventual deliverance, whether by life or by death. His future was in the hands of a faithful God, which brings us to our fourth reason for joy. Paul's joy was strengthened by the past faithfulness of God, and you might miss this unless you underline a few words in verse 20. Paul's joy was strengthened by the past faithfulness of God. Look at verse 20 with me. He says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame. That's future. I will not be put to shame. That's as he looks at his future. In anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, that is his present, as always, looks back to the past, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Many of us I know it was certainly true of me, more so in my youth. Thanks be to God that by his grace he has been sanctifying me since then and I'm thankful that I'm no longer so bound by this. But many people orient their entire lives to avoid being ashamed. I used to teach art. Many of you right now are thinking, oh I'm not an artist. I know you are because I'd get a class of 25 students, and 23 of them were of that mindset. I'm not even going to try this. Why? Because it will be making visible the fact that I really can't make a bird look like a bird, and I'm going to just avoid it altogether. I, I, I'm just an athlete. I don't, I don't do art. Arts for sissies, right? That's the way I used to think. And, and, and the fact is, it was only because I was afraid of being ashamed or exposed to I might have avoided asking a couple of girls out in my lifetime for fear that, well, I might be ashamed by their rejection. Plus, I knew Susie was waiting down the line, so I just didn't mess with it. Sometimes people are afraid of singing in public, which impacts us, doesn't it here? I know you sing in the shower. Everybody does. So why is it then that, that, that we don't sing sometimes when we're around other people? Beloved, listen, it, it's the same old deal. We are fearful about what other people think. It's not so much the singing that troubles us. It's, it's that people might hear our singing and this is one of the ways that the Bible speaks about shame. I believe that's the way Paul's talking about it here. He's, he's talking about that sense of being defeated or disappointed or disgraced somehow before others, especially one's enemies. Listen, God is not ashamed to be called our God, is he? Christ is not ashamed to be called our brother, and he will never allow us, in this sense of the word, to be ashamed. And Paul knows that. Romans 10, 11 says, For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And that's really the thrust of what Paul is getting at. It's the same thing that the psalmist wrote in Psalm 25, 3. None of those who wait for you will be ashamed Isaiah 45, 17, Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. Flip over with me. uh, You'll want to see this passage, Isaiah chapter 50. Here is the third of the... Servant songs, the suffering servant, the Messiah. That's why if you have New American Standard, you'll see all the, all the personal pronouns are capitalized here. This is, this is Christ. We're just going to pick up in the middle of this. In verse 7, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. (laughs) You see that? Go toe-to-toe with me, me and my God. You see if you can stand, nose-to-nose. Who is the one who condemns me, he asks Who has a case against me? Let him draw near. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? You see, Jesus, in fact, saw this very thing fulfilled, didn't he? You'll notice up in verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheek to those who pluck out the beard, I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting all of this was fulfilled in his life and he did in fact go through the most shameful of experiences and we're told that in Hebrews 12 and verse 3 that for the for the shame uh, of the cross what he he endured because of the joy that he would he would derive in in offering himself but he endured the shame of that cross didn't he Paul is not saying on a human level that he will not be mocked by the people who who will be examining him. What what Paul is saying is just like Jesus stood before the magistrate, just like he stood before a a spitting crowd, just like he, he hung on a cross before a mocking crowd, still, was Christ ashamed in the end? Or was he vindicated? He was vindicated in full. And we look forward to that great day when he returns and we will see (laughs) even a greater expression of that vindication when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, listen. You may find yourself suffering the shame of humiliation before men but I tell you this you will be vindicated and you will never be ashamed if the Lord is your hope and your strength there will be zero cause for shame which is why Paul says it's my earnest expectation and hope those two words are tied together they're very intimately related the word expectation is a, is a rare word. It's used only one other place in Scripture in Romans 8.19 of, of the cursed creation that is, that is longing for, anticipating its deliverance from slavery to corruption in this Genesis 3 world. It literally means to look for something with an uplifted or outstretched head. The theological dictionary of the New Testament says this, quote, it's the concentrated hope which ignores other interests and it strains forward as with an outstretched neck. You've seen people going to the finish line and stretching forward to to catch the tape ahead of the opponent. Paul is leaning forward. He's actually maybe better craning his neck He's trying to get a glimpse. He is leaning forward and into this thing. He's not moping around, hanging his head because of his circumstances. There's zero self-pity in him. He is saying, no, I am leaning forward knowing that God is going to vindicate me in the end. He will deliver me. He will enable me to preach the gospel as I need to preach it. He stands on the truth of the word of God. He has helped by the prayers of the saints, and by the provision of the Spirit. And he knows that God has been faithful to him and that he will not be ashamed. And even if he has to experience the shame and degradation of public execution, he knows that he, he, he will be delivered in the end. Before God, he will be vindicated, and he will be vindicated ultimately even before men. He was a man... Really, of one dominant passion, wouldn't he? I mean, he he had he had something in his crosshairs. He was living a life purposefully. He was not just going to beat at the air. He he wanted one thing and one thing most of all, and that is that Christ would be exalted in him, no matter the cro- no matter the cost. Is that your quest in life? that should be the believer's quest in life for every single one of us, however we're gifted, whatever our circumstances, that Christ would take this body, which he gave to us, sanctify it for his purposes, that he would sanctify this tongue, that he would use what I speak and use the way I live in such a way, whether through life or through death, through every and any circumstance, through disease, through divorce, through whatever, that he would be honored That's what matters most to me, that he would be honored in me. And Paul is uncertain about the outcome of his trial, but he was stone cold certain about this, that Christ would be exalted and he would not be ashamed. Why? I mean, why is he so confident? Well, it's right there in that verse where he says that Christ will even now as always, be exalted. I think that's the element of God's faithfulness. He looks back and he considers the things that he suffered in this life already. Hadn't Paul stood already courageously and faithfully before the powerful Jewish leadership? He had. Hadn't he stood before sorcerers? Hadn't he stood before violent pagan mobs and city officials and crowds of people who wanted to stone him? Hadn't he stood before the erudite Greek philosophers? Hadn't he stood faithful in front of angry idol makers because they were losing their business? Hadn't he stood before Jewish multitudes and hostile religious councils? He had stood before the highest-ranking Roman officials. And God had seen him through all of that. He makes that same point in 2 Corinthians 11. You just listen to the list. I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonments. That's plural. I've been in a bunch of imprisonments. (laughs) I heard MacArthur say last week, when Paul walked into a town... He just asked, where's the local jail? (laughs) That's the way Paul lived his life. That's exactly right. Far more labors, far more imprisonment, beaten times without number. I can't even count them. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times shipwrecked a nighter and a day I've spent in the deep in the ocean. I've, I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from the false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from all these external things, all the stuff that just came at me from the outside. He says, there is the daily pressure on me for concern, for all of you, all the churches. What a pastor this guy was, amazing. And Paul says, in effect, you know, I look back at all of that stuff. God has not ever let me down. He has been faithful to me. I have borne testimony of Christ so much so that he will say what? I have fought the good fight and I have finished the course. God has been faithful. It's always been that way, Paul says. I have no doubt that even now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. I am a living sacrifice. I'm a drink offering to be poured out on his behalf. God has been faithful. He will do it. Paul's joy finally was strengthened by the prospect of glory. And we see that in verse 21. The prospect of glory. For to me to live is Christ's. And to die is gain. And we're going to come back to this verse next week, and so I'm going to leave the bulk of it for then. But I wanted to point this out this morning because I think this is at the the root of it, obviously. This is his creed, his motto. This is his life verse. You know, there are only two things you can do in life, really, if you summed it all up. You can live and you can die, right? And Paul said, in both cases, what that means for me is Christ, Christ now or Christ then? Christ now or Christ in heaven? Christ by life, Christ by death. It didn't matter to Paul. Christ was the only thing he clung to. Whether he had little or he had much, he was content with Christ. Whether he was suffering or in a time of respite, he was content with Christ. And Paul, I do Doubt he sung the song, but he certainly could have. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. He says, take me now. That was Paul's heart. Can you and I sing that song with good conscience, with a clear conscience? Lord, I have abandoned all for you. You see, Jesus plus nothing equals everything was more than a bumper sticker on the Apostle Paul's car. He really lived that way. And that was the key to his contentment. That was the key to his joy. He was consumed with the ever-living Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why should his joy change? One more passage, well, maybe two. Go to your right to the book of Colossians quickly, Colossians 1 and verse 24. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do share on behalf of his body, which is the church, He does his share. I've done my share, Paul says on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There was nothing lacking in Christ's atoning work. What he's saying here is that the world would still like to give Jesus a good lashing, and I am the one who is bearing up under those lashes in Christ's stead on behalf of the body. They can't go after Christ. They're going to go after us. And Paul says, I, I've done my share of that. He says, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. I'm a servant of God, I'm a servant of you, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden in past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, look at this next phrase, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, Paul had the prospect of glory within him. He knew his future was bright. He knew the sun was rising. He knew as he drew near to death even that that sunlight only got brighter And so he said, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. Why does he say that? Because it was a ride. And in the future, he says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Beloved, do you have your eyes fixed on the return of Christ On the day of your departure, can you say with Paul, that's very much better. I look forward to that day. Again, I've confessed to you before when I was younger and there was a lot of life experience out in front of me. I had a hard time relating to that. You reach about 40, 45, 50 years old and you begin to say, you know what? Yeah. There is a prospect of glory for those who know Christ. For those who are in Christ who have entrusted themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. And he died and was raised again, and he ascended into heaven, and he is returning again to judge the living and the dead. For those of you in Christ, you have a prospect of glory that's beyond comparison. To those of you who don't know Christ, listen very carefully. This is your best life now. There is no prospect of glory, only a prospect of judgment. And if you're outside of Christ, come to Christ. That you too might know joy. That you too might know eternal life. That you too might be able to say with Paul, far better to go and be with Christ. That was better than living for Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you get this very personal testimony of Paul. He says, you know, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. I'm always trying to outpace death. I'm just being turned over to it time and again. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will know persecution, Paul says. And that's what he's saying here. Death works in us, but life in you. I've given my life to preaching the gospel that you might know Christ. And he says in verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart. Difficult as life is, we don't get depressed. Though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Do you believe the word of God? If you do, then you can at least go this far. You may not know all that heaven's glories will be, but I tell you this. It is far beyond comparison to anything you've experienced in this life. And it is far to be valued above anything you've ever known in this life. The affliction of your life might be great. I tell you, the comfort of your life, the glory of what awaits you, is beyond anything and everything you've ever known. Trust the Lord for that. You see, Paul was living on a much higher plane than most of us tend to dwell which is why he had joy and why we tend to experience anxiety. We're just too earthbound, our eyes are cast horizontally, and and we have a tendency to get too nearsighted and myopic and stuck on the things of earth as if somehow the ultimate goal in life is to stay alive. That's not the ultimate goal in life. It's to serve Christ and to see him for who He is, and to be delighted in your relationship with Him, and the knowledge that He is going to take us to be with Him forever and ever and ever—that is the prospect of great glory. We will be like Him when we see Him. We're—we're we're, we're like sometimes I think a bunch of teenage kids, I used to teach teenagers, I love them dearly, but I tell you, they, they'd cruise around, I would take them to Yosemite for their, their graduation trip in May, and there they were with their cell phones, walking in the greatest glory <laughs> in the state of California at least, and maybe a good part of the world, and their eyes were fixed on the mundane things of their stupid social media, look at Yosemite Falls, Yes, Mr. Witt. Right? Beloved, cast your eyes up. Cast your eyes up. Rejoice in the good things God has given to us. That's really what they're for. Even those things, the good things, the great days, are intended for you to look upward and say, Lord, thank you for this. And when it's rough, look up and say, Lord, Thank you for this, because it's at least made me to look heavenward and to remember again a joy that cannot be taken from me because you are mine and I am yours. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, and my cup overflows forever. Paul looks at death and he says, you know, when it comes, it's the door through which I'm going to step into a greater glory. And he says, man, I am ready for that door to swing open wide. Brothers and sisters, do you see what you have in Christ? Do you see how you can smile in your future? Do you see how you can face whatever comes at you with joy? You have the word of God and a promise of deliverance. You have the effective prayers of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You have the ample supply of an omnipotent Holy Spirit to strengthen you. You have the track record of a faithful God, a perfectly faithful God, who has never, ever let you down. That record is in Scripture, and you know it in your own life. And beyond that, you have the prospect of certain glory, whether by life or by death. What place is there, really, for discouragement and despair for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. May the Lord use these things to strengthen our joy. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Our Lord, these truths refresh our souls. I pray today that you would help us to drink deeply of your word, that we might be strengthened and that our joy might be full in Christ. You've told us, Lord, that in the world we will, in fact, have tribulation, but that we ought to take joy because you have, in fact, overcome the world. Lord, you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the eternal one. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we confess it freely and gladly and with great joy. Strengthen your people today, I ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Jim was right this morning. We should be a hopeful people. Nothing plastic about it. Hope from the inside out. Your circumstances do not dominate your life. Jesus is Lord of your life. Yes? Amen. Amen. God bless you.